Hi everyone. Before we get started with today's episode, I first want to take a minute to express my thoughts and well wishes to the people of Lebanon. The focus of today's episode largely centers on elements concerning politics of the Middle East and by extension, Lebanon. So it's only right that I briefly address what's going on there right now. So by now, you must have seen the footage of the massive explosion in Lebanon's capital city of Beirut. It was caused by an explosion so massive that it's said to have hit with the force of a 3.5 magnitude earthquake. The result of the explosion has left several hundred dead, thousands wounded, and hundreds of thousands more homeless in a country that is already experiencing economic hardship, gradually approaching levels comparable to those of Venezuela. We're not sure yet what was the cause of the explosion. I've read somewhere that it was close to 3,000 tons of confiscated ammonium nitrate that was sitting in a warehouse stockpile that somehow exploded, but there's an ongoing investigation that should tell us more in the days and weeks ahead. The problem is that Lebanon was already dealing with spikes in cases of COVID-19 and had just recently locked down, so hospitals filled with patients battling coronavirus now have to deal with a rush of even more new patients resulting from the blast. The country is in need of outside assistance, so I'll have links below the episode description to the Lebanese Red Cross and other resources if you'd like to make a donation. It really does help. So again, my thoughts and well wishes to those of you with friends and family in Lebanon. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host Rafael, and I want to thank you again as always for tuning into the show. This week, we turn our attention back to the subject of foreign interference in Venezuela. Several weeks ago, we put out an episode that serves as a primer for understanding the role of different countries providing external support to the Maduro dictatorship, namely Russia, Cuba, and China. Today, we turn our attention to the Middle East and its role in the origin of the Venezuelan crisis. We turn to the foreign presence of Iran and its proxy, Hezbollah, in Venezuela. Hezbollah is an organization that serves as a political party in Lebanon and a militant group abroad that is designated as a terrorist organization by a number of countries around the world. Apart from its public support for Nicolas Maduro and his illegitimate dictatorship, international investigations have uncovered links between Hezbollah and the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Meanwhile, Hezbollah is largely funded by Iran, a regime that has worked to create an entry point into Latin America through Venezuela over the past 15 years. To discuss this growing axis of influence, we're joined today by global security expert Joseph Humide, executive director of the Center for a Secure and Free Society, a national security think tank that specializes in trans-regional threats in the Western Hemisphere. I learned an incredible amount of information throughout our conversation, and we run through a lot of different topics. So I hope you all enjoy this special edition of the State of Venezuela podcast featuring Joseph Humide. Joining me today is a global security expert specializing in trans-regional threats in the Western Hemisphere. He's the director for the Center for a Secure and Free Society, a next-generation national security think tank based in Washington, D.C., he testifies frequently before the U.S. Congress on national security issues, 
and has also testified before the European, Canadian, and Andean Parliament, as well as the Argentine and Peruvian Congress. He's a regular national security commentator in English and Spanish on various news outlets, including Univision, Telemundo, CNN en Español, CNN International, the list goes on. He's an expert in this field, to say the very least. So with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Joseph Humide. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. No, thanks, Rafael. It's a pleasure to be on. I've been a, a listener of your podcast, so I'm very honored that you extended the invitation and uh, I'd like to congratulate you for for starting this because it's, it's very well needed in this time where we need more uh, quality information on what's going on in Venezuela. Wow. The honor is mine, Joseph. Thank you so much for your feedback. Um, so let's just dive in. I have to start by prefacing, though, that you have an extensive biography, I must say. So I wanted to ask if you wanted to tell the listeners a bit more about your background in case I left anything out. Sure. Um, well, I started uh, kind of unconventionally in, in the think tank world. Um, my background is actually in the military. So I came from the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps from 98 to 2006. And then after the Marine Corps, I went to college. I went to George Mason University, studied economics and global affairs, and then went to work for a foundation called Atlas. It's actually called now the Atlas Network. At the time, it was called the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. And that's where this center, uh, the think tank that I now manage, Secure Free Society, that's where it was born. Uh, Atlas is a kind of a Johnny Appleseed for think tanks around the world. They help uh, start free market think tanks everywhere from Europe to Africa, Middle East, Asia, and Latin America. And so... SFS started initially as an, an initiative to bring the world of free market economics to the world of security, defense, and intelligence, because understanding after 9-11 that all these threats and these problems and these social uh, issues uh, uh, kind of over, overlap, they're all inter interrelated, they're multidimensional. So uh, we started it at a time it was called Think Tanks for a Secure Free Society. And then in 2012, we decided to turn it into its own think tank. And it started really as a part-time effort. I mean, from 2012 to about 2016, we published some studies, we did some events, but I was also consulting on the side. So it wasn't a full-time effort until 2016 where we raised some money. And then we basically uh, decided to launch it as a real full-time center with full-time staff and support staff and uh, fellows in different parts of the world. And I think what differentiates the work we do at the center than, than other think tanks, so to speak, is two things. There's one, uh, we really put a lot of emphasis on research. I, I feel that a lot of think tanks, especially in Washington, have become much more communication heavy. So they, they do a lot uh, with the media, which is important. We do it too. Uh, they do a lot of uh, op-eds and a lot of different type of uh, smaller communications. But the research has been lacking, especially on issues that are related to the Western Hemisphere. We put a lot of emphasis on that. And the second is, you know, instead of stacking the think tank with a bunch of senior fellows from Washington, which is kind of the model if you come down to D.C., so instead of doing it that way, what we did is we partnered with folks abroad and we have something called International Fellows, where I take uh, very credible, uh, trusted uh, senior folks that I've developed and cultivated relationships with. And then they do a lot of our research that allows us to have a field research aspect to everything that we do, which I think helps to stay ahead of the curve. And you know, we focus on something that the Defense Department calls trans-regional threats, uh, the nature of these threats being uh, the modern age in 2020 being able to move from one region to another region and don't necessarily discriminate on a particular type of threat. So it could be terrorism, it could be organized crime, it could be proliferation. But in today's day and age, all these things are converging and, and actually uh, subsiding within certain regimes in states such as Venezuela that facilitate this. Right. So you mentioned Venezuela in the same breath as trans-regional threats. What's the biggest area of research that you're curious about right now 
or what are some of the things that you and your team are researching the most right now? No, so that's a, that's a great question. And actually just yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, we uh, at the center, we put out a infographic and it's something that we're getting more into now is putting out more infographics because, you know, I think people, you know, they're less inclined to read a 20 page policy report. And if you could sum that up in a graphic, they'll, they'll absorb more or at least they get interested and then they may be wanting to read the report. Mm-hmm. What infographic was is it's a visualization of something that's called convergence. So convergence is a theory. It was a theory. It's really more of an adopted doctrine now within the Defense Department where you take different threat streams, potentially organized crime and international terrorism, that at one time weren't considered to be the same phenomenon or even uh, related. Uh, the, you know, There was experts that said maybe there is a transactional relationship between drug cartels, international terrorist groups, but uh, they're not going to have a strategic alignment. And they were mostly right. But what they were wrong about was that while there isn't a strategic alignment, there isn't cartels abandoning their profits and turning to jihad or vice versa, where you have jihadists that are banning the cause and moving just to become drug trafficking oriented. You don't see it on the strategic level, but on the logistical level, there's absolutely a convergence, meaning they use the same logistical networks to move products, to move people, to move money. And in that, the convergence is essentially the adaptation of different threat streams coming together and using the same pathways to be able to move around the world. And in that, there's certain countries that have essentially become a state sponsor or a hub for this convergence. And that's essentially what our research focuses on. So that if you look at it from like co-centric circles, you would have transnational organized crime as one circle. You would have trans-regional threats, which covers proliferators, traffickers, and also um, terrorists as another circle. And then the last circle would be a repressive apparatus, which is usually a regime. And so you have that uh, that phenomenon in places in the Middle East, such as Syria and Iran, in places in uh, Asia, such as uh, North Korea and even China, obviously Russia and some of its proxies in Central and Eastern Europe. And then you have that phenomenon in Latin America with Venezuela. So that's been our focus of our research is to look at the convergence and to look at it within the particularly the states that sponsor this activity. That's actually what I wanted to ask you about next. Your uh, your website for the Center for a Secure Free Society, I'm just going to use SFS because it's a lot easier. The SFS website has a monthly monitor that uses the acronym VRIC, V-R-I-C. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that because that represents the countries that work within uh, those external state actors that work within Venezuela, correct? That's, that's right. That's 100% right. And so, well, the, first, the term uh, BRIC, it's B-R-I-C. It's a playoff, the term that's most obvious, the BRIC, which was the old Goldman Sachs term that looked at emerging markets and emerging economies, right? Brazil. Oh, okay. Yeah, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And so what I did is we, we just, a playoff of that term, we looked at a more, I, I consider real yet unconventional alliance and not on economics but on security intelligence and defense and this is something that i think before maybe 10 years ago was very much debated whether these three countries or four countries actually are working together or if it's just a matter of convenience that they tend to cooperate on specific areas such as military or intelligence and what i found over time is that there's more strategy and more strategic cooperation than there is competition among these countries so let's take it kind of one by one. Uh, Iran, for instance, Iran is one of those kind of less visible nations that does activity all over the world. 
because it's essentially doesn't have the hard conventional power in their economy or in their military to do uh, what other uh, global powers have done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and within that, if you look at their networks, their networks are pretty much planted, especially when you come to Latin America, in four countries, Cuba, Ecuador, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Bolivia. Actually, it's five countries I, I messed it. In Ecuador, I said four because Ecuador actually is no longer part of that uh, that group, but the, the other four are. Right. And if you look at Russian foreign military sales, which is a big part of Russia's foreign policy, it's the same four countries. And if you look at Chinese credits and loans, and, and not their investments, because their investments is a different category, but their credits and loans, what they use to actually prop up certain governments is to those same four countries. So that, to me, implied there's more cooperation among these countries. There's some level of a strategy on how they want to engage Latin America. And so what this monitor does is basically attracts their activity, all from open source, from media reporting uh, in Latin America, from local media outlets and in international outlets as well. So it attracts uh, their activity from a month-to-month period. So it allows people, analysts, scholars, other folks, just to have a accountability of what's going on, of something that really I don't think gets always covered by the, the mainstream press. Sometimes some of these like there's the other day on our latest Rick Monitor, there was an interesting uh, articles that we found about uh, uh, Iranian ships not going just to Venezuela, but going to Brazil and Panama. And, you know, we've read a lot about the, the tankers that were going to, uh, to Venezuela and that made international press. But I didn't see hardly any reporting about the tankers that were coming to Brazil or, or passing through the Panama Canal. But that was reported in some local press. So that's the kind of stuff we'll capture and we'll put out in the monitor. Okay, great. Yeah. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, in an earlier episode, we provided like a general expose of the roles of Russia, Cuba, and China to a lesser extent in actively propping up the Maduro dictatorship in Venezuela. But there's very little public knowledge about the activities of the Iranian regime and by extension Hezbollah in Venezuela. You had actually said that this is a topic that has gone from the crazy corners of Washington to a very real thing. So I'm wondering if you could start with the basics of why this issue is so important and how it equally pervades, just like Russia and Cuba, the Venezuelan security apparatus. Okay, so this this has uh, been a big focus of our research, and um, I'm going to try to keep it very concise, and, and please feel free to interrupt me if I'm going too long, because what I do want to make sure as the audience understands is that the Middle East uh, is very relevant to what's going on in Venezuela. And, and I would argue the only country uh, that really resembles some level of the same indicators and the same kind of problem set that the Venezuela crisis uh, is would be Syria. And so if you really want to understand how the Venezuelan crisis has, I want to say evolved, probably not the right word, but how it's unfolded, if you looked at the Syrian crisis, there's a lot of similarities. But those similarities to me are more than just by coincidence. Uh, Those similarities, I think, have history to back up the connections and also have uh, waves of migration. So let me start with the latter first. Uh, There's been three major waves of migration from the Middle East to Venezuela over the last 150 years. The first happened at the, uh, in 1880 with the essentially the decline, the beginning of the decline of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, they became very aggressive towards the end of the, uh, the, the 19th century. And uh, there was a lot of uh, persecuted uh, Middle Easterners, mainly Lebanese, Syrians, that fled uh, the conflicts and went uh, over to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, they found their way to the New World in three countries primarily, Argentina, Colombia, and Venezuela. Now, uh, this is actually why I think you're from Venezuela. That's why they call them Turcos, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily all from Turkey, but because it was Turkey, that the one that was facilitating the refugee outflows, 
their documentation was from was Turkish. So they, they came into these uh, these ports with Turkish papers, even though they were from Lebanon or Syria or other places. And so the second wave of migration was after 1910, which is the Armenian genocide, where there was a, a mass persecution of Christians, uh, particularly uh, uh, Christians in Armenia, that had a fleet. Uh, and so they found their way to the same three countries, but a lot came, went to Colombia and Venezuela. And then the more recent wave of mass migration was in the 1960s. And this is uh, when the, there's a rise of Arab dictatorships, particularly in Syria with the, the rise of the Ba'ath Party. The Heis Fiz al-Assad comes into power. Uh, you know, he's the father of the current dictator, Bashar al-Assad. And then that, that extended all the way into the 70s with the Lebanese Civil War. And so there's another wave of migration that comes into um, uh, uh, Latin America, mainly into Venezuela. So with this, what happens is these are mostly refugee networks. But what happened is a rat line was developed through this period of about 60, 70 years, which has converted into a crime terror pipeline. So most of the people within these communities are good, honest, hardworking people that have contributed to the society of Venezuela, Colombia, Latin America, and writ large. But unfortunately, uh, there's pockets within, the, within these communities that have been co-opted mostly by Hezbollah. Uh, and Hezbollah, like many mafias in, in the world, like the Italian mafia or the Irish mafia during its heyday, uh, they use the diaspora as their entryway into different parts of the world. Hezbollah doesn't just view themselves as a representative of, uh, you know, a political party in Lebanon. They also view themselves as representative of the Shia Muslim community worldwide and particularly the Lebanese diasporas around the world, understanding that 14% of Lebanon GDP comes from remittances. So obviously there's a lot of Lebanese abroad that matter. And because they understand that that helps them diversify their revenue streams, getting into illicit uh, finance. So in that, Hezbollah has become a major player in, in that realm. And because Venezuela has one of the largest communities, they've been able to penetrate that community to the point that there's certain members of the Lebanese community that are working very closely with the Maduro regime, or if not part of the Maduro regime, and very close to Hezbollah. Could you, um, before we dive into Hezbollah's role, particularly in Venezuela, because as you mentioned, it really has become entrenched and really covert in its operation within the country itself. Could you maybe summarize the proxy relationship between Iran and Hezbollah? Yeah, that's, that's a, actually good. That's a good, uh, an important question, too. For one, first, Iran is Persian. They're not Arab, right? So they don't have the same cultural characteristics as the Arab world what is considered in the Middle East. The second is, uh, is they're an Islamic Republic. They are a Shia Islam. So they're, they're from a minority sect within the, the Muslim faith, Muslim religion, which, you know, Shias are somewhere anywhere between 12 to 15 percent of the Muslim world. Yet Iran, even though they're not Arab and they're not Sunni, They've been able to have a large footprint in the Arab Sunni countries. And so the question is, how have they done that? And part of that answer is through Hezbollah. Uh, although Hezbollah is not Sunni, Hezbollah is Lebanese. And by being Lebanese, they are Arab. They speak Arabic. They don't speak Farsi. They understand the Arab world. So that allows them to have the presence in Lebanon first, but it even extends to Syria, then extends to Iraq, and uh, now more recently in Yemen. Uh, and it allows them to have a, a presence in a part of the world where they ordinarily wouldn't. And this kind of just goes into the mentality of Iran as a hegemon. They view themselves, you know, they were an empire in the past, so they view themselves very much as the leaders of the Middle East. Uh, and so, you know, you know, forget Saudi Arabia, forget Israel. They want to control this part of the world. And so Hezbollah is essentially the principal proxy to allow them to do it. And what it, what it kind of breaks the myth of Hezbollah, because 
uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who's the Secretary General of Hezbollah, for a long time tried to convince the Lebanese people that all he cared about was Lebanon. But what really broke that myth was the Syrian civil war, because when the Syrian civil war kicked off in 2011, about three or four years after, uh, Hezbollah militants start going into Syria to protect the Assad regime. And, and just so your listeners can understand the, the, the significance of that, uh, a Lebanese political element, which they, you know, they consider they're a political party, went to defend the, the sovereignty of a foreign nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that's important to understand because when people say Hezbollah would never get involved in Venezuela, Hezbollah has nothing to do in Venezuela, they've already proven that they'll defend a foreign government that has nothing to do with their national interests in Lebanon as long as it's what Iran has in mind geopolitically. And that describes the proxy relationship that Iran has with Hezbollah. Right. And they've also publicly displayed support for Nicolas Maduro. That could be the first step, you could say, in confirming those links between the Maduro regime and a consortium, a larger consortium of criminal organizations. In January of last year, correct me if I'm wrong, the organization stated a, uh, or yeah, they had a press release transmitted by a TV station in the Lebanese capital of Beirut, announcing support for Maduro denouncing the U.S. objective to appropriate resources of the country and punish all states that oppose U.S. hegemony. So that's, uh, you're right, from a geopolitical perspective, Hezbollah's cemented presence in Lebanon proves a further global sphere of influence, right? Yeah, essentially the the presence in Syria, because, uh, you know, it was controversial in in Lebanon to to see Hezbollah defending a government that isn't even a Shia government or is an Islamic government. It's an Alawite government. It's a minority government in that of Bashar al-Assad. So that, that was very controversial. But I think the other aspect of this that really Hezbollah doesn't like to talk about, see, the thing is when Maduro likes to talk about Hezbollah, he likes to refer to the political party of Hezbollah. So Hezbollah is multidimensional. They have a political party. They have a TV channel. They have social services in southern Lebanon. But they also have a terrorist network. It's called Unit 910 or the External Security Organization or the Islamic Jihad Organization, depending on how you want to term it. But uh, we call it the 910 because that's what they do. They're, they're in charge of all the extraterritorial operations of Hezbollah. They don't operate inside Lebanon. They operate outside of Lebanon and they operate very actively within the drug trade. And that's something that they don't want to admit. So when, Hez- when Maduro talks about Hezbollah, he tries to refer, oh, Hezbollah is just a political party in Lebanon. And we have great relationships with Hezbollah, the political element. But what he doesn't want to talk about is Hezbollah is very much involved in the criminal element within uh, Latin America. Just to give a small uh, uh, example of how involved they are, Department of Justice, who's been very active on this problem, uh, as you can tell with the indictments and everything that have come out on Venezuela, they, uh, October of 2018, uh, released a, a statement through, through the department uh, labeled the top five transnational criminal organizations that are threats to U.S. national security. Four of those uh, uh, organizations, what they call TCOs, were Mexican drug cartels or the MS-13 gang in El Salvador. Now, we can all recognize that those are big threats to transnational crime. But the fifth organization was Hezbollah. So Hezbollah was right up there above Colombian cartels, above other organized crime elements that exist in the world. Hezbollah was considered one of the top five transnational criminal organizations in the world. Uh, because uh, in today's day and age, in 2020, Hezbollah's equal political, terror, and criminal. Right. And it's very important to emphasize to my listeners something that you had pointed out earlier, the way or the manner in which Hezbollah operates outside the realm of politics, they operate similarly to the Taliban, right? Which, for example, operates within a a cellular structure where there's no one leader, but there's a sort of de facto chain of command between the groups, right? 
sort of. There, there is a leadership structure with Hezbollah. Uh, you know, obviously there's the Secretary General and then there's what they call the Shura Council and they have all these people. That's, it. That's the, the big thing. Like there was a big debate in Europe about, you know, do we designate Hezbollah as an organization, as a terrorist organization, or just their military wing or that, that ESO, Unit 910 that I was talking about. But reality is it, whatever compartmentalized department of Hezbollah they all report to the Shura Council. They all report to the same thing. There is only one supreme leader, which is a secretary general, which is Hassan Nasrallah. So they do have kind of a vertical structure in that sense. But you're right in the sense that Unit 910 is a clandestine organization. Like no one, at least publicly, really knows the the line and block chart of how the Unit 910 works. I'll give you one example of why this is really close to home in Venezuela. One of the leaders of the Unit 910, some people consider him the number two or number three leader in that organization. And again, it's a clandestine organization, so we don't really know the full leadership structure, is a gentleman named Saman Raouf Salman, or his uh, you know, Latin American alias is Salman uh, Elreda Elreda. Okay. This individual is Colombian by birth. Uh, he was born in San Andres. He was involved in the largest Islamist terrorist attack in Latin America, which was the army of bombing, the, the bombings in Argentina in the 1990s. And he has risen through the ranks of, of Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, and he is directly controlling these crime terror operations in Colombia, in Venezuela, in Brazil, in Mexico. And he's a major player. And he's somebody, that's, when we talk about Hezbollah's support to Maduro regime, that's very important in, in that network. Right. Not only that, but there are also proven instances, if I'm not mistaken, of cells inside of Venezuela that are used as a base of operations. One of the ones that you talk about, and I'm wondering if you can expand on it, is an island called Margarita in Venezuela that's just off the coast of uh, the Caribbean coast, north of the capital city of Caracas. And from what I understand, it serves as a hub for drug trafficking and for Hezbollah, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, most people that are familiar with Venezuela will know Margarita Island for being a tourist hub. Because from what I understand, it has great beaches. It's a very, very nice nice place to visit. Uh, unfortunately, I've never been there. But uh, yeah, uh, it's a free trade zone as well. And so one of the things that Hezbollah has done very well at is they've been uh, embedded themselves into Lebanese uh, communities that are usually reside around free trade zones because they're heavily involved in import-export businesses. Uh, that's one of you know, the merchants and, and, and traders. And there's a lot of the things that the Lebanese have been very good at. Um, and so Marguerite Island is one of those areas. And there's a particular family. Uh, it's called the Nazaradine family that has been very much involved in Marguerite Island and buying up real estate, uh, setting up construction and infrastructure projects, uh, developing uh, schools and associations, and essentially being major power brokers on the island. One of the older brothers in the Nazaradine clan is a guy named Abdallah Nazaradine. And Abdallah is a member of the PSUV, he's a member of the political party of, of Maduro. Another brother of the Nazardine clan, Ghazi Nazardine, who is actually uh, sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. He was uh, sanctioned back in 2008 for his ties to Hezbollah. And he uh, was also listed on the persons of interest file for the FBI in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Ghazi Nazardine was the Venezuelan, the Maduro's uh, representation in Syria for about six or five or six or seven years. Uh, so he had a political, he was in the foreign ministry, he had a political, uh, diplomatic charge. Uh, and so, uh, these individuals have embedded themselves both into state and society inside Venezuela, and they reside in Margarita Island, and they essentially they control the island. They uh, help the regimes with their illicit financial ch networks to be able to have support through some of these import-export businesses that are used, that, that are sometimes used to layer and launder money for illicit drug trafficking. 
That's incredible. Um, I actually know a little bit about Nasser Aladin's uh, case being sanctioned by the U.S. back in 08 for assisting Hezbollah financially. I know this because he was sanctioned alongside another gentleman named Fauzi Kanan, who's another Hezbollah facilitator who used his Venezuelan travel agencies to support the group. And the way that he was doing it, if I'm not mistaken, is um, something that you actually testified at a congressional hearing last year on Capitol Hill. You presented a list of over 2,000 Venezuelan passports that were issued to suspected members of Hezbollah, Hamas, and other Islamist groups. So I'm wondering if you can expand on that and maybe describe some of what you presented to Congress as evidence of this very elaborate passport scheme. Yeah, so that was one of the, I think, one of the most, uh, what we think maybe like hard evidence when it comes to the cooperation between Maduro and international terrorist networks, particularly Hezbollah, has been in, in, in the sphere of immigration. Uh, so, you know, just to couch, I think something most of your listeners will understand and agree with, most normal democratic countries, they would use their immigration services to block terrorist networks from coming into their country. Their screening measures, essentially, to be able to stop uh, um, terrorists from coming in. That's what those watch lists are all about. Uh, Venezuela, however, used its immigration service, uh, which is called SIME, to not uh, screen for terrorists, but actually to invite them and to help and facilitate uh, their documentations, not just so that they can come to Venezuela, but they can use Venezuela as a launch pad to be able to move all throughout the world. And so in this, uh, in, in the investigation that we did actually goes all the way back to 2011 and 12, when we were, it actually starts in Canada. We were in Canada and uh, it's kind of a funny story because I got a meeting with uh, a member of the Canadian parliament who sat on the immigration committee in the parliament. And uh, this person told me, that they had reports from their immigration and intelligence services of Venezuelans coming to Canada that didn't speak Spanish, that only spoke Arabic. And they said that they had this reports, like they had these lists of people that were coming in that, and they had funny documentation, like some of it didn't seem to add up uh, when they did the, you know, the different screening measures. And so that kind of sparked this investigation. So we started to look into it. And in 2014, we published a report. This is actually the first policy report published by my center, by SFS called Canada on Guard because it focused on Canada. But what it focused on was an immigration security scheme that was uh, put together by Cuba, Venezuela, the, at the time the Chavez and the Maduro regime, and uh, Iran and Hezbollah. What, and what the scheme entailed was essentially to create not just uh, documents, but to create identities, to actually give a full suite of documents, uh, passports, birth certificates, driver's license, property records, bank records, to take someone from the Middle East, say someone from Lebanon or Iraq or Syria or, or Iran, to, to say that they're Venezuelan when they never stepped foot in Venezuela. Uh, and they had a complete government documentation and, 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 a, and a, almost a cover legend to back that up. In, in intelligence terms, this is tradecraft. Like you would ask any case officer in the world, that's a dream come true, to have a government legitimize your cover is, is essentially makes you bulletproof to be able to operate around the world. And so this was happening, albeit there was limited cases. There were some cases where they were just giving visas to some individuals facilitating quick visas uh, so they can open bank accounts. Uh, in other cases, it was the passport so they can move around. But in limited cases that I saw, uh, there were you got the full suite. You got the full suite of records. And th those, those are essentially ghosts. You don't know who they are anymore because their complete identity has changed and they can be roaming around the world and we don't even know uh, who they are. And it's very difficult for our systems to catch that uh, type of problem. So nonetheless, the, that, that was then, a, I think CNN did a great job uh, covering this in a documentary that they released in 2017. We helped with that documentary. It's called Passports in the Shadows. Really? Yeah, this is, this is actually a very good doc. Everyone, if you haven't seen this, 
It, it was nominated for an Emmy. It was a CNN documentary that was the first uh, joint investigation by CNN uh, English domestic and CNN in Espanol, uh, where they looked at the this immigration security scheme and they actually had a character witness. They had a protagonist. His name is Misael Lopez Soto. Misael was actually the legal attache at the Venezuelan, the, the Chavez Maduro regime embassy in Iraq. And so he witnessed all this. And not only did he witness it, he investigated it himself because they tried to force him to get involved in the scheme and he didn't think it was right. And he basically documented everything and he presented all those uh, evidence to the various authorities around the world, including the United States. We invited him here to the United States and he spoke in the Congress, uh, to, he presented some of the evidence as well. And what he found out was there was this very sophisticated network inside the consulates that uh, Maduro, and, uh, with the Chavez regime initially, but extended to the Maduro regime in the Middle East, principally in Iraq and Syria and Jordan and Lebanon, that were essentially uh, using these documents, one, to, for profit, selling them to just the highest bidder, but two, strategically, to create networks among these countries so that they can hide the relationship that they really hold. And so that documentary came out, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's only about 20 minutes or so. so they, the documentary doesn't fully cover the whole problem, but it does a good job at, at, at establishing the precedent. And I think now, like, it's pretty much well known that this is the immigration has been a big uh, window for, for these Middle Eastern militant groups to come into uh, Latin America or, or the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I've actually seen that documentary. That's incredible that you guys took part in putting that together. It really, and I have to uh, back you up on this, uh, listeners, watch it if you get a chance because it does a great job of providing hard evidence. In that particular documentary, there were about 170 something individuals from the Middle East that were issued Venezuelan passports from 2008 to 2012. And among them were people that were connected to Hezbollah. And the person who was in charge of all of this, of issuing, granting visas, nationalizing citizens from Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, the person who was in charge of that was then Interior Minister Tarek Al-Assami. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners or expand on a little bit about his background, because he plays a huge role in all of this. Yeah, Tarek Al-Assami is one of the most powerful people in Venezuela. According you know, to my analysis, I think he is the most powerful person in Venezuela, even more so than Nicolas Maduro or Diosdado Cabello or, or other folks that are in the high command of the revolution. Uh, the reason I say that is because uh, Tarek Al-Assami's always had the international portfolio. He's always had the relations with the Middle East, which I've said is very important, but also he's had the relationships within uh, the, the broader global powers such as China and Russia. And, and I could get into that in a second. But just so everyone, everyone can understand, Tarek Al-Assami is a, um, basically a, a young Chavista that had a meteoric rise through the Bolivarian government. He uh, started in the, we well, started in the ministries of, uh, like the Deputy Ministry of Interior, and then he actually became the Minister of Interior in 2008, uh, that he was in charge specifically of this immigration scheme because under his ministry, the immigration services uh, resides. Uh, and so he was in charge of that operation. And then he became uh, governor of uh, an important state, uh, Aragua, which is an important state because of the military presence in the important air base, uh, Libertador Air Base that's in Aragua. So he uh, went to become the governor. And then in 2017, if I remember right, yeah, in January 2017, Maduro named him as the vice president of the country. And that's where he really came into the limelight. Most people started to pay attention to Tarek Al-Assami. Uh, since 2017, he's held different 
ministry titles. He was Minister of Industry and National Production. He's now the Minister of Petroleum. But in, in a sense, since when they named him Vice President, he essentially, I think it was like two weeks later, they signed an executive decree to give him all these powers, including a complete control of the economy. So he's uh, essentially taking control of every major industry, the entire uh, export-oriented uh, uh, sectors of Venezuela. He is uh, someone that's been implicated in massive money laundering schemes. So he blends these illicit economies with the state economy. And so you can't really tell the difference. And that's why it's been very difficult in terms of sanctions to know what we can actually sanction inside Venezuela that will actually make a big difference because it's hard to tell what's legitimate in Venezuela or what's blended with the illicit underworld, the illicit economies. So Tarek Al-Sami is kind of the, the mastermind behind all that. And he's an individual, I think, that has an interesting background in terms of his family because his father, Carlos Zaidan Al-Sami, was an individual that was very much involved in the origin of the Bolivarian Revolution. He worked right alongside Hugo Chavez's older brother, Adan Chavez, in the uh, border between Colombia and Venezuela. He worked closely with the FARC. And they established these student networks uh, way back in the early, the late 80s, early 90s. And they established these student networks. And a lot of these students ended up going into the different political apparatuses and the military to be able to be the formation of what was the Bolivarian Revolution once Hugo Chavez rose to power in 1999. So the Al-Asamis have had a long trajectory in, in Venezuela. And, and just to extend it to the Middle East, his uh, great uncle is a gentleman named Shibli Al-Asami, who was one of the co-founders of the Ba'ath Party in, in Syria. So he was uh, one of the two individuals that created the Ba'ath Party to establish the political element that put Haizfiz al-Assad into power in Syria, that extension put of Bashar al-Assad uh, at the power uh, today. And also when the Ba'ath Party splintered and they had two command branches, one in Syria and one in Iraq, Shibli al-Assami went to Iraq and he established the party that helped boost Saddam Hussein. So they have a tremendous amount of influence in the Middle East as well, which makes him inherently a very powerful man. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't even know about that. Um, I knew about his family background and him being of Syrian Lebanese descent. But now I understand how that might have allowed him greater access to Hezbollah because Hezbollah is someone with whom his father had worked on return visits to Syria as well, correct? Yeah, so his, his father was very influential. And, and I, I don't want to get too historical, but maybe this is an important historical uh, note in that. Um, so the, that wave, that last wave I was telling you about, that wave of migration that happened in the 60s and 70s. So there, because there was this rat line, there was this essentially this clandestine route that a lot of folks came into Venezuela that we didn't really know who they are. To this day, we don't really know who they are. Um, and one of those individuals, for example, is named Nehemet Chagin Simon. And he has a very interesting story. He's known as Simon El Arabe in, in, the, in the history books of Venezuela. But he's a very interesting story because in the, in the 1960s, if you remember, the Communist Party of Venezuela was having a very difficult time with the Venezuelan government. They were in a constant clash, but the Communist Party was losing uh, that clash. And, and in 1964, if I remember right, the leaders of the Communist Party of Venezuela were incarcerated in a famous uh, jail called the San Carlos prison. In 1967, they broke out of prison through an underground tunnel and literally came back out into the streets. And the person that broke them out was this Syrian refugee named Shibli al-Assami. And so he not only did he break him out of prison, but he essentially changed the doctrine of what the Communist Party of Venezuela was working on, what led to the Bolivarian Revolution. He said, look, I'm glad you guys are working with the Cubans. I'm glad you're doing that Cuban doctrine of guerrilla warfare, but it doesn't work. It didn't work in Angola. It didn't work in Bolivia. It, it only worked in the island. It's not going to work on a, such a large territory as Venezuela that has a much more established military uh, than it did at the time. And he said, don't attack your military, infiltrate them. 
do what we did in the Baathists and infiltrate your military and then use your military to capture the country. And so uh, because of that, that's that's in, in doctrine, that's the, the shift from being a guerrilla uh, movement to an insurgency. And it's very different in terms of ways and means and tactics. And so that was the idea that was brought by Shibli al-Assami that then later Turek's father, Carlos Zaidan al-Assami, implemented in Venezuela. So you can argue that Chavez would have never existed had it not been from this Syrian migration. It wasn't the Cubans that formed Hugo Chavez. It was the Arabs. <laughs> My jaw was dropped the entire time that you were telling me that story. I, I did not know that it ran this deep. That is that is incredible, Joseph. Um, I don't even know where to go from there. Um, I, we'll go back to that, but I wanted to slightly pivot to Iran's role in all of this because we had talked about how Tarek Al-Assami was overseeing this fake passport scheme, but he also oversaw this system in Iran that began in 2007 known as Aerial Terror, Aerial Terror, where planes filled with drugs and cash, but no passengers, would fly from Venezuela to Iran and Syria, and they would pick up Iranian intelligence officers and the IRGC. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, or when you would say you picked up on a certain level of Iranian activity in Venezuela that went well beyond just a mere friendship between two countries. Yeah. So like um, kind of appreciating what we, what we've been talking about up until now with this historical references. And so because there's these large concentration of Arab communities in Venezuela, Iran very much knows how to operate in Venezuela because it's not that much different than the Middle East where they obviously are penetrating the Arab world. And the way they penetrate the Arab world, as I mentioned before, is by setting up proxy networks. So the big difference within the Middle East and Venezuela is the, in the case of the Middle East, a lot of those proxy networks are Islamic. You know, they're working with uh, the Houthis in Yemen or Kataib Hezbollah in uh, Iraq or the, the, the militias in Iraq or in obviously Hezbollah in Lebanon. When he goes to Venezuela or Latin America writ large, uh, they don't work just with Islamic elements. They work with anything that's an, what they call anti-imperialist. Iran considers themselves the leaders of the anti-imperialist movement. Even the way they sell themselves in Latin America is not the same way. They don't talk about the 12th uh, Imam or the, or the Islamic Revolution. When they come to Latin America, they, they say the 1979 Iranian Revolution was a lifting of social movements to protect natural resources, which was British Petroleum at the time. And so when you say that in Venezuela, that resonates with a lot of groups to say, oh, you guys are protecting oil? Oh, you guys are protecting uh, are you about social justice? That moves a lot of different elements. And that completely jives with what Chavez and Maduro said with the Bolivarian Revolution. Right. So Iran has been able to access Venezuela through these networks. And, and like while the Cubans, I think, have a, a strong grasp over the communist networks, the Arab networks are really under the thumb of Iran. And within that, if you look in you know, kind of the, the power structure of, of the Maduro regime, there's a lot of... Lebanese, Venezuelans, Syrian Venezuelans in important positions of power, not just Tarek al-Assami, but Tarek William Saab, Attorney General. Uh, you had uh, governors that were uh, of Arab descent. You had a refugee, Chani Jimenez, who was in charge of the military industry. And so we started seeing it from that perspective. We started seeing where we're looking at these pockets of where there was influential Venezuelans that had strong connections to the Middle East. And in that, uh, one of them that went into the military was, I, I just mentioned him, was Arefra Chani Jimenez. He, he had one of these unique billets that uh, you don't really see. He was the head of Venezuela's military industry, which is Cabin, uh, based in uh, Maracay. And he was also the director of external relations for PDVSA. So he had one hand in the military pot and another hand in the energy industry of Venezuela. So he kind of blended the two. And he essentially set up the initial footprint for Iran's military to come in for the Revolutionary Guards. 
because he signed a series of bilateral cooperation deals, military to military cooperation between uh, the Venezuelan military and the Iranian military, particularly their logistical arm, which is called the Modafo. Uh So that was the cover platform. And they shielded the payments through PDVSA. They shielded the payments through the energy sector. And again, he was the director of external relations for PDVSA. So you could go all the way back to 2007 and eight, and you see the semblance of the IRGC coming into Venezuela. Now they had ebbs and flows. And that flight that you talked about, what was dubbed as Aero Terror, was a logistical arm that was been implemented. I think that flight went from about two, the same period that he, Richani Jimenez was in power from 2008 to about 2011, 12 or so, where that flight shuttled from uh, Caracas to Damascus to Tehran. And no one really knew what was on it. It wasn't commercially available because if you try to buy a ticket, they would block you. You know, no one really goes to these countries. No, I don't think there was like a high tourist demand for Venezuelans that want to visit Iran or, or for Iranians that want to visit Venezuela. So right. it was a very much a controlled flight and it was through state-owned airlines. But that was a logistical uh, transport that moved people, that moved products, and that also moved minerals. And so that happened for that certain period of time. It got a lot of attention in the media and in, with them policymakers. And so they shut down. But recently it's reopened under a different banner. It's been going on over the last couple of months where they've created uh, a, another air corridor with a different airline called Mahan Air, mm-hmm. which is not a private airline in Iran, but it's the Revolutionary Guard's preferred airline because it's the same airline that brought all the weapons and personnel from Iran to Syria to defend the Bashar al-Assad regime that brings them to Iraq, that brings them to Yemen and in, in, in all these conflicts. And so now it's going to Venezuela. And they've also brought tankers uh, uh, into Venezuela as of uh, May, uh, in, in June of this year. And these tankers are tied to uh, the Iran's military as well. So like, it's important to understand the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, is very much embedded into Iran's economy. Uh, upwards, as some analysts say, upwards of 50% of Iran's economy is controlled by the IRGC. That's maybe a, a kind of a, a high estimate, but it's nonetheless the National Iran Oil Company, which is the main uh, exporter for their oil, is very much influenced by the IRGC. So when you talk about old cooperation. If ostensibly we're just talking about energy cooperation, I don't think anybody would have a problem with this. But we know that the Maduro regime is non-transparent with its energy deals. And we know that the Iranian regime uses its energy to cover its military transfers. So that's where the concern comes. And how long have they been doing this? Well, for at least 15 years. Right. That Mahan Air, it's it's important to point out, or just to reiterate for my listeners, Mahan Air, as you mentioned, it's sanctioned by the United States and it's banned by several European countries for providing transportation, funds, transfers, and personal travel for the IRGC and Hezbollah. They established in April of last year that direct flight route between Iran and Venezuela. Not coincidentally, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif, offered more IRGC personnel to Maduro at the time that the route was created. So suffice to say, the initiative seems much less interested in promoting tourism from Tehran to Caracas, then providing a means of transporting government officials to and from both countries, not just government officials, of course, IRGC, Hezbollah. But another thing to point out, April of last year, that same month, the foreign minister of Venezuela, Jorge Arriaza, met with Lebanese President Michel Aoun and his son-in-law. And I was wondering if you can expand on that meeting because it ties into all of this again. Yeah, well, we, I don't know the details of what was discussed, obviously, with, with uh, the foreign minister of Venezuela, Ariasa, and, and, and the president of Lebanon. However, I know that uh, I think, uh, I believe it was the treasury officials from the terrorism and financial intelligence division uh, in, in the treasury had also identified that aside from meeting with the formal government in, in Lebanon, they also met with the leaders of Hezbollah in that same visit. And I, I believe that's been reported, uh, or if it hasn't, it's, it's, it's been discussed, I know, in, in, in media and commentary that the Treasury officials have done. 
So um, I think this just kind of uh, uh, exemplifies the importance of the Middle East. If you, if you kind of take a careful look over the last, uh, I'd say, three, four years, uh, basically since 2017, since Trump became vice president, if you look at the every time the regime is really in, in trouble and they're in dire straits because they're, they're being pressured and obviously the U.S. has had a uh, some effect at limiting their resources and, and, and eroding their legitimacy. Every time they're in trouble and their backs against the wall, they go abroad every single time. They go to the same country. They go to the Middle East. They meet with Syria. They meet with Iran. They meet with uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon. They go to Russia. They go to China. Sometimes they even go to North Korea. And so they, they work with this international network, which is why we call it the VRIC SFS, because that is the linchpin that's been helping or essentially saving Maduro from leaving power. I believe it wasn't for that international alliance, Maduro will be gone a long time ago. But it's that it's essentially that the same alliance that props up Bashar al-Assad in Syria is the same alliance that's propping up Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. And that's added to the complexity of, of finding a solution to the Venezuela crisis. And it's really interesting that you point that out too, because another one that we can discussed just very, very briefly, that's also helping prop up the Maduro regime and is one of his few remaining allies is Turkey. Now, I have to preface, Turkey, interestingly enough, is at opposite ends with Iran when it comes to the Syrian conflict, because, of course, as you know, Iran is supporting the Assad regime, and then Turkey is on the side of the United States. But it's supporting Venezuela in defiance of the United States, who is a partner in NATO. And I'm wondering if you could just briefly talk about Turkey's role in facilitating not just their uh, influence in propping up the Maduro regime, but more specifically, this gold for food scheme that they have implemented. Yeah, so Turkey really is kind of a new actor in Venezuela, at least in terms of the Erdogan government and, and their uh, activities and their actions in Venezuela. I mean, let me start with this. Let me say that, yes, you're right that Turkey and Iran have differences in, in their positioning in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, there are different histories. There's the Ottoman Empire versus Persian Empire, and there were actually adversaries at, the, in, at one point in history. However, in recent years, there has been some level of alignment. I want to say between Turkey as a whole, but as Erdogan regime with the Ayatollahs of Iran. Uh, and, they, and they have cooperated uh, quite a bit on, on, on certain um, intelligence and, and defense cooperation. So uh, Erdogan essentially becomes a major player in Venezuela in 2018. And uh, trade essentially explodes where it, trade was nil, was nothing in 2017. In 2018, uh, there was upwards of 23.6 tons, if I remember right, or close to $900 million of gold that was shipped from Venezuela to uh, Turkey. Uh, in, in a way that allowed the Maduro regime to evade sanctions. Uh, this is at the same time where U.S. sanctions started to ratchet up uh, to build inc incremental pressure on the Maduro regime. Now, the, what happened is we, we saw those initial transfers of gold and we said, okay, well, that's just a way to look around sanctions. But we, at the time, we didn't realize that the money was coming back into Venezuela, but in the form of food. So essentially, all these offshore bank accounts were established in the Caribbean, some in Cuba, and they were uh, deposits were coming back in to those Caribbean accounts that were given to food distributors in Mexico. That's the famous CLAP food program that would be uh, the food shipments that were sent into Venezuela. So over time, what the Treasury mm -hmm. basically discovered was there was a, a scheme, uh, like a legitimate uh, scheme between gold for food, where the gold would go from Venezuela to Turkey, or uh, in some cases, Venezuela to Russia, and that the, these offshore accounts would essentially uh, layer the payments and then the money would be transferred to, or some of the money would be transferred to uh, these food distributors in Mexico and allow that to come into Venezuela. 
Now, the importance of that, aside from the illicit aspects of it, because it was built off a drug trafficking money laundering network, which you could get into in a second, but uh, other parts, it established a humanitarian corridor, which I think is very important for what's going to be happening with Venezuela in the future, because Maduro, who says, you know, he doesn't accept US, United States humanitarian assistance, but he does accept it from these other countries. He's accepted it from Turkey, from Russia, from China, from Iran. And so in order to do that, they have to establish a logistical corridor to be able to bring that in. And the Gulf for Food Scheme did that. Right. Uh, for my listeners, I highly, highly, highly recommend an article where Joseph goes into this much more in depth. The article is called Iran, Turkey, and Venezuela's super facilitator, who is Alex Saab? We have not gotten to Alex Saab yet. I don't know if we'll have time to do so because that in and of itself, his profile would require an entire episode because his role in facilitating that scheme cannot be understated. He is probably the most important man in this uh, in this crisis right now when it comes to understanding where Maduro is hiding his money and where the regime is making its money. Now, the CLAP program we already have uh, discussed briefly in another episode, but uh, like you mentioned, this um, this gold for food scheme with Turkey is really something else, especially with the way that, like you mentioned, it establishes a humanitarian corridor based out of a trade money laundering network to steal millions from starving Venezuelans through these no-bid contracts for this CLAP program, which, as I've mentioned in other episodes, is littered with beetle-infested boxes of food that provide no nutritional value to Venezuelans. And that's why they're losing on average 24 pounds, um, the Venezuelan people. But that's beside the point. The point here I wanted to make, and slightly pivoting to Iran, is that now this same scheme, from what I understand, is being implemented this time with Iran, where they are sending, instead of gold for food, now it's a gold for gas scheme with Iran, right? Yeah, so essentially the same logistical network, which you, you stated correctly, was is essentially built out of a trade-based money laundering scheme. Uh, so they used this money laundering network that's already been built, and they layered it on top of this humanitarian uh, shipments. And so it worked very effectively for the Gold for Food scheme. So they say, hey, why, why, you know, now we have a shortage of gas. Why don't we do the same thing, but this time with Iran? So that was the that was the essentially the 2020 project, and that's what Alex Saab was intended to work out when he was traveling to Iran and to Russia. Uh, a few months ago, but uh, it, the, his luck ran out in the middle of June when he showed up in uh, Cape Bird and he got detained, right? And so not to go into the Alex Saab case, as you correctly stated, that would be like a whole episode in itself. But in essence, uh, there's an, a part that I think a lot of people haven't focused on his the Saab case because um, he's an important facilitator. He's a middleman between uh, the Maduro regime and these other powers, namely Turkey, Iran, and, and Russia. But the other part that people don't recognize is that he built his network in the Lebanese communities in Barranquilla, Colombia. He's Colombian to begin with, and he built his networks off of money laundering uh, networks that are in the Lebanese communities in the coast of, uh, of Colombia. So he already had access to like Hezbollah and Iran and all these things from his previous uh, illicit uh, networks. So when he comes to, to Cape Verde, essentially what he's doing is he's trying to liberate some of these tankers that got seized by uh, local authorities because of pressure from U.S. Uh, sanctions and economic, uh, other economic measures. Uh, because while those five famous tankers that came from Iran to Venezuela with a lot of propaganda and fanfare, where you saw all the Iranian flags being waved on the ports in Venezuela. And in the capital. Yeah, in the capital. You see, you see all these, this propaganda that was done for these five tankers, as if it was like the best, the biggest humanitarian shipment ever sent uh, to Venezuela. But mm -hmm. what that was not meant to do is to distract from another four tankers 
uh, at least four tankers from Iran with different flags. They were re-flagged with Liberian flags, the ships that were registered not in Iran, but in Greece. And these ships were traveling through the coast of the western coast of Africa, and they got detained because the U.S. was tracking this very closely. So two of these uh, tankers, these Liberian flag tankers, were detained off the coast of Senegal right near Cape Verde. So I believe, I don't have this confirmed, but I believe that Alex Saab went to Cape Verde to liberate these tankers. Uh, and then because he, he, he made that mistake of doing that, he, he, he got detained because he, he underestimated, I guess, their influence in Cape Verde or, their, or the protection that they would have from the Cape Verdean authorities. And so now there's become a tug of war. You have the, the BRIC countries, Russia, Iran, China, mostly Iran, helping the Maduro regime find a way to liberate Alex Saab. And you have the United States essentially helping the Cape Verdean authorities uh, extradite uh, him because he's wanted in the Southern District of Florida for eight counts of money laundering. So he's become like a tug of war in this uh, conflict in Venezuela. That's incredible. Yeah. He's at the heart of all of these regime schemes with both Iran and Turkey. And that extradition process, it's been approved and it's pending decision by the Cape Verde authorities. And I speak for all Venezuelans when I say that I am hoping and I am praying that he makes it to the United States. He's extradited and that he spills his guts because he is responsible for the starvation of millions of people. He enriched himself grossly at the same time with these elaborate schemes. And in fact, actually, uh, Joseph, I have a really funny story for you. Um, I have a friend of mine who's from Colombia, from Barranquilla, and she knew Alex Saab's son. And which, which son? The son who's actually uh, also been indicted and is also facing charges. Yeah, Shadi Saab. Shadi Saab, yes. So he, you know, in his splendor and his wealth, because this family, of course, was rich beyond comprehension, would throw parties at his apartment and at their house. And she tells me that when she would go to these parties, the man had in, uh, in the center of his living room a portrait of Hugo Chavez. So yeah. they weren't even hiding their allegiance to the Bolivarian revolution. That's how yeah. dirty, that's how terrible these people are. Was this in, in Venezuela or in the U.S.? Uh, in Barranquilla. Oh, Bar oh, in Colombia. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so like, Alex Saab is very well known in, in Barranquilla. Uh, I'd say Barranquilla High Society. Um, but yeah, Shadi Saab is an interesting case. You know, a lot of people characterize Alex Saab in the media as a front man or in Spanish what they call a testafero. But he really wasn't because he didn't sign a lot of the documents. His son is really the front man. For, for a lot of these companies. Shadi had his name, and Shadi's like only in his early 20s or mid-20s, but he right. had his name on a lot of these companies that, that they were using for this goal for food scheme. So uh, I, I believe he's an aspiring actor, actually, and he wanted to go into Hollywood. And so he used to come to the United States quite a bit. I think he had an apartment in Miami and, and one another one in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And so he was like rubbing elbows with a lot of these famous actors. And, and you know, there's a long story about Hollywood's misgivings with the Chavez regime and Maduro regime, where a lot of actors kind of are misguided of understanding what's really going on in Venezuela. And so they pretend that it was just a case of, uh, you know, an oppressed country that was being under the thumb of the international community, when in reality, that they were rubbing elbows with the oppressors. I'm talking about people like Sean Penn or, or Danny Glover, actors that I like, actually. I love their movies, but unfortunately, they, they I think, were a little misguided in what was happening in Venezuela. So Shadi Saab was kind of moving in that network. That's an understatement when you say that they are a little misguided. And I hope that Shadi Saab knows how to put on a good act in court. Yeah. Now, when it comes to this, um, this gold for food scheme that he, for which he was the front man, I wanted to also ask if you can expand a little bit about a report that came out earlier this month by the Wall Street Journal 
reporting that there's a massive Iranian supermarket that was opened up in Caracas in coordination with this CLAP program that functions as the front for evading these uh, sanctions. I think it was, or it is being run through the Iranian company Etka, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Etka. It's 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 a it's a basically it's a retail chain in in Iran. People in Iran will recognize some of the brands uh, like Vaush and Darush and, and some of these other Iranian brands that they use in in the supermarkets and, and, and not just the supermarkets, but in clothing stores and other places in in Iran. And what they did is they brought that over to Venezuela. So I think the important thing about this is that for a long time the Iranian presence in Venezuela didn't mean anything. Like for for your casual observer. It was, okay, so there's an Iranian uh, auto manufacturing facility. There's an Iranian tractor facility. Uh, they, they're doing these, but nobody like really cared. I mean, the cars that they developed, the Iranian, I don't think Iranian vehicles for one aren't at the high end or at the top end of vehicles that are on demand. So well, like, you know, when they had this like uh, auto manufacturing plant in Venezuela, people kind of just laughed at it. In fact, they couldn't sell any of the cars. They had to give them away to the military because that was the only way they were going to get them out of the production line. But people looked at that. Almost like because they couldn't understand the purpose or they thought the purpose was uh, not commercial, the commercial purpose wasn't productive, that it didn't matter. And my argument to that is that Iran is the master of dual use. So they, they build commercial covers to be able to establish footprints that usually have another purpose that's more militaristic in nature. And that's a covert purpose. Like we're not going to know what that purpose is because they're not going to declare it. And what they use is they use these different companies to be able to establish logistical networks so they can establish a military presence. And I think what we're seeing now in Venezuela is the beginnings of an IRGC logistical network that's been built over 15 years that is going to allow IRGC command units to help come into Venezuela to help protect the Maduro regime, much like we've seen the Russians do with the Wagner Group, with the paramilitaries, or the Russian forces that have been coming in over the last uh, uh, recent years. So I think that this is kind of a, a way that uh, allows uh, Iran to operate in, in a place that's very foreign to them. I mean, they don't have, like they have these networks very well entrenched in the Middle East, in Iraq, especially, obviously in Syria, but they don't have it that well entrenched in Latin America, except for in places like Venezuela. Right. And that's actually one of the final questions I wanted to ask you, Joseph, looking ahead Really within the scope of domestic affairs, I think it's fair to say, as I've commented with other guests, that unfortunately now this week actually marks 18 months since Juan Guaido took the oath of office, assumed the interim presidency, recognized by 60 countries worldwide as the rightful president of Venezuela. But it seems like the needle has moved maybe a couple of centimeters, not even an inch. And if we moved an inch, then it's a couple of centimeters back through some faults logistically inside within the opposition, but maybe more so just the just the level of outside interference that has, um, as you rightly point out, helped maintain the uh, the Maduro regime and its um, and its position as a global hub of crime and terrorist convergence, as you rightly describe it. So I want to get your take on this notion that this crisis can still be resolved politically. Every guest I've interviewed on the podcast thus far has balked at the idea um, and has outright rejected the idea of mediated talks between the regime and the opposition. So what do you think can be done to get this man, Maduro, out of office and to topple this dictatorship once and for all? Yes, let me begin by saying, Rafael, that um, I don't think the goalpost should be Maduro. Uh, I think Maduro will eventually go uh, I, always, I actually 
believe that Maduro was never intended to stay this long. That this is basically a consequence of, a, of the pressure mechanisms because they felt that this was a nice way to push back against the United States. Uh, I think Maduro was essentially an interim president after Chavez's death, and that they've always been building to, to hand this over either to Tarek al Asami directly or to a surrogate of his, you know, uh, right. to complete the project. So I think the goalpost of having Maduro leave is a little short sighted. However, I do understand the essence of the regime collapsing, essentially transition to a democracy, free and fair elections and all that. Now, that which is much more difficult to do. Within that, I, I agree that, you know, the diplomatic political solutions that, you know, basically a negotiated solution is very uh, not likely. I mean, these are things that have been tried. I can't remember the actual number. I, I, someone from Venezuela once told me it's like somewhere upwards of like 26 times over the last a decade or so. Uh, there's at been, least a dozen, yeah. Yeah, at least a, a dozen or so times. And like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and not producing a different result, right? So like, I don't know at what point, you know, I think people in Venezuela already understand this, but at what point the international community is going to realize that you can't just keep doing the same thing. You're not going to get a different result. But at the other extreme of that, they have people that really call for more like a direct intervention, a military intervention, which I don't think is also the solution because this isn't a conventional conflict. This is very unconventional. Uh, this is actually something that really is changing the paradigm of what a threat really represents, uh, not just to obviously first and foremost the Venezuelans, but also to the United States. Uh, and and um, as we've learned in other conflicts that military solutions don't always work. Uh, and, and so I think that the military intervention can actually make things worse. And that's not uh, necessarily a good idea either. But I think, let me start with this. I think we have to identify something that the military does very well. Like when you do these war games and stuff, like what is the center of gravity of the Maduro regime? That is probably perhaps the most important question before you get into any solutions. Because if you don't identify the correct center of gravity, you're never going to have the correct strategy to find a way to get rid of this regime. And so if I were to ask that question, I'm sure I would get like 50 different answers, but a lot of them would be like narco-trafficking or the military. But my analysis says that the center of gravity of Venezuela is their ability to lie and deceive. That is the mm -hmm. number one way they've been able to survive for so long. And that is amplified by their intelligence networks, their counterintelligence networks, and their propaganda channels, both the propaganda channels that are embedded with the regime and their ability to infiltrate opposition elements and use the opposition as a counter narrative that's favorable to their objectives. So I think that's been the biggest struggle with Venezuela, where we haven't characterized the regime in the right way. We haven't actually gotten to the essence of what is the nature of the regime. To begin with, we've completely abandoned the notion that they have a revolution that backs them. Now, I know it's not popular, it's not, it's kind of taboo in Washington to talk about the Bolivarian Revolution, but that very much still alive in the hearts and minds of the, of the Chavistas. And, and one of the things I've kind of challenged some of the policy folks or some of the experts here in Washington is that, yes, they are interested in power. Yes, they do like their money and they like their yachts and they like their trips, uh, foreign exotic trips to Miami and other places. But many, at the, especially at the high command, I'm talking about the Tarek al-Assamis, the Diosdados, the Maduros, like at the high end of the, the, the regime, a lot of these people over and above fame and fortune, what they're really looking for is to win. And they truly believe they're going to win. When I say win is they're going to accomplish the goals of the revolution in conjunction with their international allies. And they believe that they're going to defeat the United States in the West. If you have an enemy like that, you have to very much understand their nature of their regime. So the only thing I would say is that in order to counter, in order to defeat them, we're going to have to have a network-centric strategy. I mean, we have, we have to be honest. The, the, the Maduro regime is not isolated. They have too many options in the international community. 
They have ability to escape pressure mechanisms. Just in Latin America, they still have Cuba and Nicaragua, of course. Bolivia is hanging in the balance. We don't know what's going to happen with Evo Morales there, if he's going to come back or stay out. Mexico is, is a, a strong supporter, uh, Lopez Obrador. Argentina is looking like some days it's a supporter, some days it's not, but it could potentially be. And most countries in Latin America are in a high degree of instability that at any minute the political balance could be flipped and we could be uh, reversed back to 2007, 2008, where the Bolivarian Revolution had a tremendous amount of political support in Latin America. And that's just staying within the region, not even mentioning the global powers that we've been talking about on the program. And so we have to understand that as long as they have that network, they're going to be very difficult to beat. And we have to start chipping away at that network. I think the solution actually comes from abroad, like going around at at their allies before we try to do anything from within Venezuela. Right. I completely agree. We need to treat this entity for what it is, an international crime syndicate. So with that, my last question has to do with the present instability in Venezuela, because it brings into question what to do with Hezbollah. How do we expunge it? The transitional plan that was uh, set up by the transitional government, the Plan Bais, pinpoints the need to neutralize these criminal elements that sustain Maduro's regime, you know, the ELNs of the world, FARC. So understanding that Hezbollah is in Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, what do you think could be done to help expunge the presence of Hezbollah in Venezuela moving forward at the day after Maduro goes? So, so all these networks, whether we're talking about Hezbollah, or we're talking about the FARC or ELN or, or any of these, you know, transnational criminal networks or, or terrorist networks, they, they essentially have the same recipe to be able to dismantle them. Uh, you have to A, de- delegitimize their brand and B, eliminate their critical nodes, basically the, the, the critical nodes of where they have their, their logistical structures. So in the case of Hezbollah, some of that's already being done, which is a good news, but we need to do more. Uh, so there's been an effort by the Trump administration uh, in conjunction with different allies in Latin America to do something that was way overdue, which is have Latin American countries designate Hezbollah for what it is, a foreign terrorist organization. So up until last year, no country in Latin America had Hezbollah that legally designated in their country as a terrorist organization. And that caused a lot of confusion with people that are analyzing this. This is why you probably heard, like in the past, there was a lot of speculation about Hezbollah in Venezuela, Hezbollah in Colombia, Hezbollah in Argentina, because the countries didn't have the ability to properly classify their intelligence efforts at investigating this. And so the communication was done all all confused. Uh, So now we have, uh, I believe it's four countries that have designated Hezbollah. You have Argentina, Colombia, Paraguay, and Honduras that have officially legally designated Hezbollah uh, as a terrorist entity in their country. And I think we have to do more of that. Uh, and then at the same time, we have, you know, the Department of Justice and other Department of Treasury and other elements uh, have established sanctions and uh, indictments against many Hezbollah facilitators, fixers, what's called the support network. Essentially, once they start to bleed that network out, that's going to tap into Venezuela. Because what we're going to learn, and I think what many of us already know, is that Venezuela has eclipsed the tri-border area as becoming this primary hub for Hezbollah's logistical networks or support networks in the Western, in Latin America. And I think that's something that we're going to have to understand. I think Hezbollah is going to become more of the bigger part of the conversation, just like the ELN and FARC is right now when it comes to the illicit non-state actors inside Venezuela. So I think that's a big part of, of what we need to do. And uh, on some of the other ones, I think on the bigger, the bigger challenges in terms of the state actors, the external state actors, uh, I think we have to start looking at the alliances between them. Uh, right now in, in Washington on foreign policy, one of the biggest or national security, one of the biggest conversations taking place is the alliance between Iran and China. 
knowing that they just signed a, or about to sign a 25-year agreement on military and trade that's going to bring those two countries very closer together. At the same time, Iran is, uh, has already signed a, a 20, a 20 some year agreement with Russia. And so I think we have to start looking at the alliances between those two, and we have to find a way to break them. They're not natural alliances. Like Russia and China are historical Cold War adversaries. Iran and Turkey are historical. I mean, they're completely different empires. Mm-hmm. We have to find a way to wedge those alliances and make sure that they don't encroach themselves all into Venezuela. And um, uh, I believe that uh, that's a difficult challenge, but I think it's very possible to do. Uh, and I think once we do that and we make them have competing interests inside Venezuela, yeah, that's where you're going to start to see the Maduro regime have to choose, you know, which side of the, that alliance they belong to. Right. All those details are scrambled. And if we can get to that necessary step of having hopefully members of Congress, I know that uh, Ted Cruz... Chuck Grassley, they spoke at a um, at a RIC event last year in Washington on Capitol Hill about this subject. So it's good to see that at least some members of Congress are up to speed. But if we can get the rest of them up to speed, the administration and the world at large, then we can combat these transregional organized criminal networks that have such strong ties to the kleptocracy of the Maduro dictatorship. And then hopefully Venezuela will have a chance at returning to a modicum of normalcy for now and the success story that it once was in the future. So with that, um, I, I just want to ask in conclusion, Joseph, where can our listeners find you if they want to follow you and learn more about your work on Venezuela? Well, yeah, so that brick event actually is, is the event that we held last year at the Senate Heart Building. So you could find us on all the social media, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, or, uh, you, or Twitter. On Twitter, the institutional handle is at SecureFreeSoc, and my personal handle is at JM, M is Michael Humeyer, my last name. So you could find me. I'm not as prolific on social media as I should be, um, and I get criticized for that from here, here and there, but uh, I'm trying to improve. So uh, if your listeners will bear with me. I'll be hoping to post more and more. But our research and everything else, our publications and, and our events, you can find on our website, which is securefreesociety.org. And Rafi, if you let me, I just want to maybe end with a more of a positive note in the sense that in the essence of national security, I think when you have these conversations about threats, they tend to be a little more doom and gloom, right? You talk about all the complexities of these actors and often the reactions I have when I'm, when I'm giving a presentation or, or doing a, you know, commentary uh, is you have kind of fear. Like people will be like, oh my God, this is worse than I thought. And, and, and people think it's already bad. And, and, you know, for someone that looks at this from day to day and, and really kind of understands it, it is complex, absolutely. And it's going to be difficult. It is not an easy challenge. And I think we've learned that. We all understand that. I think, you know, even President Guaido understands that. That said, I think uh, we have to understand that we're going to win. And I think that is a mentality that we can never abandon. And I, I firmly believe this. I, I believe that as much as Iran or Russia or China want to uh, use Venezuela as part of its uh, global power projection, and this era of great power competition, as much as they think they have the upper hand, they don't have the cultural, linguistic, or historical connections that the United States does with Latin America. The minute we realize how important Latin America is to our foreign policy, it's going to be game over for a lot of these folks. The question is, how do we get our policymakers to that point? Because as you know, Latin America hasn't got the attention it needs from U.S. policymakers. It's often been the last point of conversation or the last line in a policy discussion. But that's going to change. And I think when it does change uh, and we're going to be more inside the game and competing with these adversaries, then we're going to find solutions for Venezuela. And I, and I truly believe that we will win because if we don't, uh, if we lose in Venezuela, it's the first step to losing everywhere else in the world. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much for that, um, for that positive reinforcement. I think that I can speak for Venezuelans when 
when I say that we could really use that pep talk every now and then. And it's kind of like Dr. Martin Luther King said himself, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I hope that's equally applicable to Venezuela. So if you want to support Joseph's work and the efforts of the Center for a Secure and Free Society and read more on the convergence of the Iran, Hezbollah, Venezuela axis, you can follow Joseph on his Twitter. Again, his handle is JM Humire. The handle for the institute itself is at Secure Free SOC. And the SFS website is securefreesociety.org. Joseph, I really learned a lot from this interview today. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure, Raphael. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. I'll see you all in the next one.